And we are listening once again to a piece of music that is significant. And I was going to tell Elizabeth Battle she gets the gold star for recognizing what this is. Does anybody else know what it is? Yes! Y'all are so good. All right, this is Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries from The Ring Cycle. And The Ring Cycle, of course, Wagner based this uh, musical composition and opera on Norse mythology. So, of course, Lewis and Tolkien were very attracted to it. And Lewis liked some parts of it musically, didn't like other parts so much. But it's very interesting when you read in his letters, because he is very often going to London to hear so-and-so do this part. But uh, it's something that was very uh, much part of Lewis's life. Music was really a big part of Lewis's life. We're going to talk about that from time to time. So let me turn this music off. Well, the easiest way to do that is just unplug it. <laughs> so that works. All right, so uh, let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into some wonderful things. So let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the gift of this time. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to explore in the work of C.S. Lewis the themes that he drew out of your word and out of the reality of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that as we examine these themes, that they will enable us to grow deeper in our understanding of what it means to follow you this day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do tonight is we are going to delve into uh, the Mythopoeia poem. And I don't know how many of you saw the little thing that I sent out today with the little Charlie Brown oh, video, video clip. And if, in case you missed it, in the video clip, Lucy and Charlie Brown and Linus are lying on a hillside looking up at the clouds. And Lucy says, I love to look up at the clouds and see the different shapes. And it's so beautiful. Linus, what do you see? And Linus says, well, that cloud over there looks like Raphael's painting of the martyrdom of St. Stephen. And the one next to it looks a lot like the profile of Thomas Eakins, the famous American painter from Philadelphia. And Lucy says, well, that's very nice. Charlie Brown, what do you see? And he says, well, I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I think I'll just be quiet. And what I want to say is they were all right. There was a ducky and a horsey, and then there was the other stuff too. And so as we talk about this poem, if all you see is the ducky and the horsey, that's great. That's great. If you happen to see some of the other things, that's great too. Um, but do not feel intimidated. Uh, one thing I would suggest to you, um, if you are in the snorkel or scuba track, uh, you may find that as you read things, it is helpful to you to either have a dictionary with you or to have your phone set where you can look words up. One of the things we have to remember is Lewis and Tolkien are both geniuses. 
They both are professors of English at arguably the most learned university in the world. And I am sorry to say, I can only speak for myself, but my vocabulary is very impoverished compared to theirs. Now, you all may know all of these words cold, in which case, more power to you. But if you don't, having a dictionary you may find to be helpful. So last week, we talked a little bit about the background of this poem. And we talked about this important night in September 1931 when Lewis and Tolkien and Hugo Dyson walked on Addison's Walk here at Oxford in Maudlin College and talked uh, until about 4 o'clock in the morning. And they talked about a wide variety of things uh, that changed Lewis's thinking, which is pretty astounding because Lewis was a very smart guy who was very set in his viewpoint, but his thinking was changed by these conversations. And we're going to explore that a little bit. Tolkien wrote this poem, Mythopoeia, after that evening, and it reflects some of the back and forth in their conversation. Now, you might have noticed also, if you looked in your email, that last week I couldn't remember who Joseph Addison was, and so I sent you the little link on that. Joseph Addison, a very famous um, English author, essayist, but most known for uh, writing in The Spectator, which was a <coughs> journal that he did in England that was widely read by a lot of Americans um, at the time of the Revolutionary War, very influential. But the lesser-known fact, which is really interesting to me, particularly given Mythopoeia, is there is a beautiful and somewhat unusual hymn in our hymnal uh, that is called The Spacious Firmament on High and All the Blue Ethereal Sky. Uh, it talks about the music of the spheres. Joseph Addison wrote the lyrics to that hymn. And that hymn has some of the same imagery that this poem does, which is very interesting. So you can pronounce this poem any number of ways. I have asked five different people, all of whom should know, and I've gotten five different answers. So some people say it's mythopoeia. I don't like that. <laughs> Other people say it's mythopoeia. Other people say it's mythopoeia, and then other sort of combinations like that. So whatever you want to call it, feel free. Uh, but we are going to delve into it. And part of the reason that we're going to spend some time on this is that this poem is prophetic in a really profound way about what happens in Lewis and Tolkien's relationship, what happens in their work, and in what happens in establishing their particularly Christian worldview that took in everything. If you remember way back to our first class, that quotation uh, that was at the bottom of the screen that says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so that is part of this worldview that we're going to be looking at. And one of the things that is particularly significant about this is that, uh, as we talked about in the first class, Lewis is, I believe, really, really important for our culture today. And part of the reason for that is that we have a lot of Christians 
that compartmentalize their faith over here, and then they more or less buy into the worldview that our culture has out there. And that is a disaster for being able to live a life that has the aroma of the gospel around it. And part of what we as Christians need to do is to reclaim this worldview that Lewis and Tolkien described that is part of historic Christianity. And as part of that worldview, we have to be able to understand some of the assumptions that our culture makes that we unconsciously buy into. And one of the profound things about this poem, and we talked a little bit about, this is a dialogue between two points of view. One is the atheistic, materialistic point of view uh, that Lewis held at the time, um, highly intellectual, uh, but also one that was full of a lot of existential despair. So that's one point of view. The other is the rich, wonderful, not wonderful, but wonder-f-u-l-l, wonderful view of Christianity as this just amazing, beautiful, rich way of looking at life. And so there's a dialogue between the two. But one of the things that features in that dialogue is this question of what does it mean to be a human being? And this is one of the biggest questions in our culture right now, although it's not asked very often. Because what you have to understand is that behind the atheistic, rationalistic, materialistic point of view is the idea that it is a cosmic accident I'm just going to pick on Henry Fishburne. Henry Fishburne, there's no difference between Henry Fishburne or a rock or a cockroach or a ginkgo tree. It's just an accident that he happened to be who he is. He has no more value than a pebble or a tree or anything else. When he dies, the atoms that make him, just like the atoms that make the tree, all return to the earth and none of it matters. On now, <laughs> Tolkien's going to do the protesting for you. But the, the problem with that is you can see if you follow that to its logical conclusion, it has a lot of implications about how you deal with people, how do you deal with issues like right to life kind of issues, how do you deal with quality of life issues, how you deal with the way that nations treat one another, um, all, all sorts of ramifications. And Tolkien takes this on. So we, I, I could spend a year on this poem, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to get through the whole thing tonight. Um, we'll see. That means we're just going to scratch the surface. But I, I know some of you found this poem daunting and confusing, and that is perfectly fine. But I hope you'll find at least one gem out of it that you will be able to hold on to. I saw a ducky and a horsey in it. That's good. That's good. There's a, there are duckies and horsies in there. Yes. So um, at the beginning, uh, there is this part that Tolkien is addressing to Lewis. And the you is Lewis. He says, you look at trees and label them just so, for trees are trees and growing is to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace. One of the many minor globes of space, a star is a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical. 
amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain at bidding of a will to which we bend and must but only dimly apprehend, great processes march on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals and as on page or written without clue with scripture lending pact to various hue, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien except as kin from one remote origo, gnat, man, stone, and sun. So basically he's saying, Lewis and his worldview sees a tree and there's no sense of wonder about it at all. It's just this thing that's there that might be in his way or it might be useful or not. It doesn't really matter. It's just there. It has no value. Earth is not special. It's just one of many planets that are out there. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing special about the human race. There's nothing special. There's no creation uh, at all. Everything is futile. The stars that you look at don't try to think about the beauty of the night sky, for heaven's sakes. Instead, just think about the fact that that's just some flaming magma up there, and there's no beauty to it. Any beauty is just an illusion. There's mathematical <coughs> process at work that forces the stars and the planets to do what they do, and it is cold, it's inane, and it is all tending toward death. All our atoms are destined to death to go back to the dust from whence they came. And any atom, whether it's Henry Fishburne or a gnat or a cockroach or a stone or a tree, it's all just going to go back to atoms that don't matter, and it was all pointless. You feeling cheered up yet? Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's some will behind this, but it's not a person. It's not a personal will. It's just a force. It's not a good force or a bad force. It's just a force that makes this happen. We don't really understand it. There are these processes that go on and time unrolls and we don't know where time started because it's dark beginnings back there. And it's just like a page that gets written over and over and over again with the futility of life. You write one generation story, their atoms go to the ground. You write over it another generation story, their atoms go to the ground. And then he picks up this line, the endless multitude of forms, that's from the last page of Darwin's Origin of the Species. And he's talking about that chart that you've probably seen of the gradually increasing um, up to Homo sapiens. Um, and he says, each of these are alien, they have no connection with one another, except they're all related to this remote orgo, which is the, um, the cosmic goo, or whatever you want to call it. Um, the, the, the mud that somehow transforms itself into life forms and all those life forms somehow differentiate and transform themselves into humans or rocks or whatever. So part of what Tolkien's doing here is he's pushing Lewis's buttons because he knows Lewis intellectually. This is what he's holding to, but he knows that Lewis's soul sees beauty and that you can't have that cognitive dissonance and be intellectually honest. Ron, what line is it again that's from Darwin? Um, the endless multitude of forms up here. Uh, so the second stanza, okay. fourth from the bottom. Okay, thanks. So this is the response. Part of what makes it confusing when you read the poem is until you've read it a couple of times, you don't quite know which point of view you're at. 
This is the response. And you're going to notice in this first stanza a lot of words that you probably don't know, and there's a reason for that. Uh, so this is Tolkien's response. And look at the way he starts off, God made. It's like, in your face. <laughs> God made the petrius rocks, the arboreal trees, Tellurian earth, and stellar stars, and these homuncular men who walk upon the ground with nerves, the tingle touched by light and sound, the movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large, slow oddity of cows, thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dent. And the idea is that God made all of this. He made it out of nothing. He made it and the rocks are petrius. That means they're rocky rocks. The trees are arboreal. They're tree-y trees. <laughs> the earth is tellurian. It's earthy earth. And that's literally what these words mean. It's, it's a redundancy, but what he's saying is they're so rich. They're so full of what they are, and they're not the same. It's a tree is not the same as a star or the earth or a cow. Um, these things are all different. They all are what they are, and they reflect what God made them to be, and there are layers of depth in that. And that there's, there's sound, there's music, there's vision. So you hear the wind and the boughs and the gulls wheeling and crying and the sound of the ocean waves and all of this. And he's saying, this is, can't be an accident. How could this be an accident? And so he goes on, and so he's got God made, and then he goes a step farther in the next stanza. Yet trees are not trees until so named and seen, and never were so named, till those had been whose speeches involuted breath unfurled, faint echo and dim picture of the world, but neither record nor a photograph, being divination, judgment, and a laugh, response of those that felt a stir within, by deep monition, movements that were akin to life and death of trees, a beast of stars, free captives, undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. All right, there's a ducking and a horsey buried in here. <laughs> All right, who's on the middle of the Sistine Chapel ceiling? God. God. God, and what's he doing? He's, he, what's he doing? He's touching Adam, and he's, he's making Adam. And after one of the things that you hear is an image of that, what does God do to Adam? He breathes life into him. So that's one of the duckies in here. The speech is involuted breath. This is God breathing life into Adam, breathing life into humans. Breathing life. What does Adam do once Eve is created? What does he do? He names things, which in Hebrew is hugely important. Um, giving something a name in the Hebrew culture um, indicates authority and power over it. And so we have this naming going on. He's talking about the creation narrative here. So this naming is going on, and a tree isn't fully what it's supposed to be until it's named, until it's given that name by man who is the summit of God's creation. And that this, the next thing that happens, part of naming 
and this is probably really obvious, this is probably the horsey after the ducky. <laughs> but uh, part of the naming is that if you give a name, what are you doing? Okay, you're defining identity. What did you say? Yes, you're giving it worth. Those are all true, but this—that's—that's that's the—that's the Raphael. Um, this is more of a horse. So you're speaking words, okay? So you're speaking words. So speech, speech is one of the things that makes us uniquely human, uniquely in the image of God that we can speak. And words, and think about Tolkien as a philologist who loved words, fascinated by words, that this is part of what makes man so unbelievably special. And so the words that we give, even in creation, the words are only a faint echo and a dim picture of the world because the world, that creation is real, it's deep, it's Tellurian earth and stellar stars. And we don't have words to be able to convey all of that. But it's enough that it stirs us and stirs us. And we, we begin as we think and we consider this creation to see that we are free, even though we're captive on this earth, we're free and that we can begin to sense that there's reality that is beyond what we experience. So there's this amazing beauty in the way that God made us. And there's this amazing beauty in the way that God made creation that is not a flat, dusty, pointless, despair-filled area that just happens to be on this planet. So I'm hoping you're seeing there's a big contrast here. Um, yes? Just real quick, what does the word homuncular mean? Um, it just means man-like. Yeah, all of those are redundant there. It's, right, I knew, but I still didn't know. I was yeah, like, yeah, book. yeah. Manly. Manly. <laughs> all right, so here we go, a little bit more building on that. Great powers, they being the people who God created, they slowly brought out of themselves, and looking backward, they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind and light and dark on secret looms entwined. He sees no stars who does not see them first of living silver made, the sudden burst of flame like flowers beneath an ancient song whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls them. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned, his world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. So up in this top part, when you think about elves, what do you think about besides keyboard? <laughs> Pointed ears, what else? Short. Short, what else? Think about Tolkien elves. They live forever. If you watch the Lord of the Rings movies, what happens every time an elf comes on the screen? Yes, good. There's a very particular type of music every single time. Does anybody know what it is? 
If you've watched it 150 times like I have, you would know. It's chant. Every time an elf shows up on the screen, there's chanting in the background. Hmm. What could that mean? Where do we hear chanting? Church. Church and angels and all of that. So the elves are a myth. They're a myth with a capital M that conveys beauty. And the elves in Tolkien are kind of analogous to angels. I don't want to push that too far. Um, but it's this idea of being able, to, when you don't have the words for beauty, to create something that conveys some of those ideas. So that's part of what's going on there. And then the next part is he just blows him out about talking about stars as a ball of gas in the sky and says that they are made of living silver that burst to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song. And if you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, you will know that this happens in the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis was so impressed with this image that there are living stars that fall to earth in balls of flame and then are given names and become characters in the story, which is pretty cool. And, and the magician's nephew, how does Aslan create the world of Narnia? Yes, he sings it into existence. Yes, there is a roar, but he sings it into existence. It's this ancient song singing it into existence. And the firmament, this is what I was talking about last week with the idea of the vault um, that Bishop N.T. Wright was talking about at Mere Anglicanism a couple of years ago. He said part of the problem is that one of the images of our age is we look at the sky, we look at the beauty, especially of the night sky, and we think it's a void. And he said, up through the medieval period, men looked at that and thought that it was a vault, like the vault of a temple, like the vault of a beautiful church, that it was a vault underneath which was a world of wonders to be discovered. And that the, the mental transition of that is one of the great tragedies of our age. So the firmament looking like a jeweled tent Myth. Can you just point to some of the words? Because I've been clicking. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so this is like the second stanza that's on there. Okay. Yeah, it may be easier to follow on your hard copy because um, this is not the easiest thing to see. I didn't want to make it a hundred slides. <laughs> um, but the the whole idea of the jeweled tent is one. Oh, thank you. How do I how do I do that? This one right here. <laughs> there. Okay. All right. Okay. okay. Good. Thank you. So um, the jeweled tent right there, myth woven and elf patterned, and then the idea of the earth as the mother's womb whence all have birth. And this is the idea that the earth is a wondrous creation in and of itself. It's not just dirt. If you think about, and again, we've lost touch with this because none of us are farmers and few of us are gardeners, that you plant the seed, which is brown, dry, and dead looking, and you plant it in earth, and then it grows, and it might grow and bloom. That is crazy. That shouldn't happen. So that's what he's talking about, that once all, all of nature has birth. 
The heart of man, the heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and the wise is capitalized in the original and still recalls him. That even though we have drifted away from God, we are made in the what of God? Image. The image of God. And that image of God, is that idea is going to keep showing up in here. And we still recall him, and God is the only wise. What does wise mean? Or what's wisdom? Knowledge. Is it knowledge? Martha. Well, Rennie Scott used to say that wisdom was um, God, now I'm um, seeing the world from God's perspective okay. and acting on that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Seeing the world from God's perspective, knowing how to use the knowledge that you have, how to apply the knowledge that you have, is wisdom, and he's saying God is the only one who's wise. Who do the atheists think are wise? Themselves, yes. They are the ultimate authority. And Lewis, Tolkien is saying, ha, ah, that's what you think, but only God is wise. So, though now long estranged man is not wholly lost or wholly changed, disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rag of lordship once he owned. So man is not wholly lost, even though the fall caused this estrangement, and it's that whole East Eden and that, all that great stuff we don't have time to talk about. Um, and then the, the punctuation here is original, the disgraced, with the hyphen there, that God wanted to give us this grace. He wanted us to live in that, and we chose to distance ourselves from it, that we ran away from the embrace of our loving father. But we're still not dethroned. Remember, man in the creation narrative is the only part of the creation about which it is said what? Does anybody very remember? Good. Yes, very good. The only one that says, and it was very good. Um, every other aspect of creation, you only get the very at the creation of man. And then Adam is made the Lord over this creation. So that's the rags of lordship right here. His world dominion by creative act. That's referring right back to Genesis. That we as humans are given this dominion, this stewardship by God's creative act. We didn't make it up. And it's a stewardship that God has given us that is really important. Because if you believe none of it matters, if you might as well be a rock or a gnat or a dead cockroach, does it matter how you treat the environment? No, not but at all. If you think about naming, the importance of naming, <clears throat> and Adam was, allowed, was given the privilege of naming the animals. Yes, everything, yes. Huge. And so Adam participates in the creation, not by actually making the creatures, but by naming them and by having dominion over them. So Adam is an agent in this creation. And then not his to worship the great artifact. The artifact is the creation itself. We're not to worship the creation. What are we to worship? God, the creator. Yes, we're to worship the creator. Is this making sense as we're going through here? Okay. Yes, exactly. All right, this part is, okay, well, 
Um, so this is, he, he's, he's really building up steam here, okay? So man sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind, though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seed of dragons, twas our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. And I could go on forever about this, but um, sub-creation. This is huge. This is the heart of what Lewis and Tolkien discovered and what makes them unique in the literary canon and the theological canon and the philosophical canon. And the whole idea here is that man is the refracted light. So if all of you probably remember from high school um, putting light through a prism and you have this white beam and it hits the prism and then it splits into the spectrum of all of these gorgeous colors. And what Tolkien is saying is that all of those colors are inside that white beam of light, which is God himself. And that when God in creation refracts his light, you end up with the human race. You end up with all of these different people that are all different colors, that are all different points on the spectrum, but they all bear the image of God and they all contain that light of who God is in creation. Even though there's the fall and everything else, that part of God that is reflected in us is part of what it means to be human. And then he says the biggest way that we show that is by being sub-creators. That God is the master creator who created the large, slow oddity of cows, who created the oceans, the trees, everything that there is, the beauty of the sunset. But we, as being the lords of creation, we alone, out of everything that God made, have the capacity to create, not to reproduce. We do have that capacity, but that's not what he means. The capacity to create, to paint, to write poetry, to imagine things that don't yet exist and bring them into being. And as we do that, we're reflecting who God is because God is a creator. And in the richness of his power, he has endowed us with the ability to create. And so Tolkien is saying here that we are at our most human, we are at our most image of God when we are creating, when we look for those gifts that we have. And one of the things that we can create is relationship. There are all sorts of things that we can create. And just a little pause. Think about how different this is than our culture's view of what it means to be alive today. I mean, it is radically, radically different. And it's just going to get more so. So anyway, I know I'm interrupting, but I just got to say this. The word manifold in the Greek where it talks about the manifold gifts of God, that word is multicolor. It's that prism. Yep, yep. So I love yep. that. Yeah, he's got, there's so many layers in this. It's yeah. awesome. But anyway, so we have the possibility 
to be able to create. And as we create, we are living out what it means to be in the image of God. As we imagine and think back to the zainzut, to the intuition, the other ways of knowing besides rationally that we talked about earlier, that's what he's trying to get at here, that all of this is because God made us unique. We are unique in all creation. And every single person is unique, like every point on that spectrum of light is not exactly like any other one. And all of those gifts reflect who God is. And so part of the way we can use those gifts is to fill things with elves and goblins, the angels and the demons. We can imagine gods and houses, and we can sow the seeds of dragons. We can think about evil, and we can think about the poor power that we have with words, but then we can dream of myths where if we try to explain evil, it's hard, but then when you think of something like Mordor and Sauron and all of these evil empires that you find in Tolkien's creation, you understand evil in a profound way that you don't get just from talking about what evil is. So that's part of what he's trying to get at here, that we have this right and we can use it to make things that are beautiful, or we can use it to make things that are ugly. We have that right, and we make still by the law in which we're made. We are made in God's image, and so we are makers with a capital M. So the next part, yes, wish fulfillment dreams. We spend to cheat our timid hearts and ugly fact defeat. Whence came the wish, and whence the power to dream? or some things fair and others ugly deem. All wishes are not idle nor in vain. Fulfillment we devise, for pain is pain, not for itself to be desired, but ill, or else to strive or to subdue the will alike were graceless. And of evil this alone is deadly certain, evil is. So, um, wish fulfillment dreams, where does that come from? Freud, yes. Freud, the favorite person of high school educators across America who will take novels that are written as Christian polemics and tell you that it's all about Freud, um, which is just intellectually dishonest. But Freud, Tolkien hated Freud. He hated Freudian analysis. He thought Freud was a fraud, no pun intended. Um, if you look at Freud's method, well, I'm not going to go there. Just <laughs> suffice to say, if you study Freud very much, there's not much there in terms of his scientific method. Uh, but what he's saying here is that you know Freud would say, oh, religion is just wish fulfillment. We want the cosmic father and the cosmic mother because we're so alone. Um, and well, what Tolkien is saying is, sure, we have wish fulfillment dreams, but the reason that we have them is because God planted the wish in our hearts, and we're wishing for this world for which we were made that doesn't fully exist on this earth. It's that gorgeous part that's in Hebrews and the Hall of Fame of Faith of all these people looking forward to the kingdom of God, looking forward to that city that God is the architect. And that wish and that power to dream of that is planted in our souls by God, that we hunger for the something more 
And we don't want to just be satisfied with the little bit that this world offers to us. So he's saying, yes, we want to wish, we want to dream. That's really important, and it's not idle. It's not in vain. And sure, there's pain in this world, and there's evil. But one of the things about that is that if you take God and the Creator out of the picture, if you take truth with a capital T out of the picture, how do you know what's beautiful? How do you know what's ugly? What's the standard? There is no standard. Everything's pointless, useless, futile, destined to die. So the whole idea of beauty, you can't support that as a philosophical concept in an atheistic materialistic framework. So Lewis wouldn't like that. So Tolkien is, uh, again, pushing on his buttons. And he says, the one thing we know about evil, and notice that's capitalized in the original also, evil is, and again, and without going off in a long philosophical discourse here, you can't have evil with a capital E without what? Good with a capital G. And so if it all is the same, if none of it matters, there's no difference between good and evil. It's situation ethics. Wherever you know, something might be good one time, but it might be bad some other time. And what Tolkien is saying is no, evil is a real thing. But the reason evil is a real thing is that good is a real thing, and good is found in the kingdom of God. All right, I've got to speed up here. All right, so this part, you'll notice there are three blesseds. What does that sound like? The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, uh, one of the most beautiful parts of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, arguably Jesus' most important teaching about the kingdom of God, uh, and it starts with the Beatitudes. Hugely important, underappreciated in our culture, Uh, And when you look at the Beatitudes, you will see that the things that are weak and powerless in the eyes of the world are the things that Jesus commends and says are blessed. And I want you to notice there are some parallels here. It's not an accident. Tolkien knows his Bible. It's not an accident that this is reminding us of the Beatitudes. So he says, blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley and in guarded room, though small and bare, upon a clumsy loom, weave tissues gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow's sway. And this is the idea of you are oppressed, you're living in a place that's evil, evil is all around, you quail, you're afraid of it, but you shut the gate, you fasten yourself in, and you seek no parley. Sounds like the pirates. Uh, But you're not going to compromise. You don't want to have dialogue because you know that you're dealing with evil. It's like that great Churchill quote, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. (laughs) And yet that is what we try to do with our culture so often. So you see no parley. And in this guarded room, um, they're back on a clumsy loom. They're weaving tissues. They're weaving banners for the return of the king. They're going to be ready to worship. They're going to be ready when the evil is overthrown because they believe that that day is coming and they're acting on that belief. They're not just sitting in there moaning and complaining about the world's going to hell in a handbasket. 
They are looking forward and moving toward that day when their hopes will be fulfilled. And then we have the Noah image. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arcs, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary toward a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. So what did people do? What did they think about Noah when Noah was building his boat? <laughs> yeah, he's crazy. Crazy, crazy. What kind of lunatic would do that? And all of the rest of the people are occupied with which kingdom? Yes, the kingdom of the world. They're busy with the kingdom of the world. Noah has let go of the kingdom of the world, and he's focused on God's kingdom. And what Tolkien is saying here is that we are blessed when we are like Noah, that when we see our world full of a flood of evil, that we make our little arcs and steer toward that harbor guessed by faith, that we may not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future, and we are moving in that direction. So notice there's activity, there's purposefulness here. This is not just sitting around thinking about how bad things are and hoping it gets better, but this is active waiting. And then blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not that they have forgot the night or bid us flee to organize delight in lotus isles of economic bliss for swearing souls to gain a Circe kiss and counterfeit at that machine produced bogus seduction of the twice seduced. Such isles they saw far and once more fair and those that hear them yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat, but off to victory of tune to the lyre, and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen. So the legend makers, those sub-creators who write about good and evil, beauty and truth, are doing something so important. They're writing about things that haven't happened. It's not within recorded time. They're imagining, but and they have not forgotten the night with the capital and the darkness of the age in which they find themselves. But they are producing, well, we'll get to that in a minute. The other thing they're not doing is saying, oh, if you just make enough money, if you're just successful enough, if you have a good job and two cars in the driveway, everything will be fine. Economic bliss, money in the bank account, able to pay your bills. And what he's saying here is people forswear their soul for that. That's the good old 60s sellout, cop-out. Um, sell your soul to the man. And uh, this is, we can do a whole, if Penn Haygood were here, I'd get her to do a lecture on the Odyssey for us. But this is all drawn out of the Odyssey. So when Odysseus is um, out sailing, um, there's the island of the lotus eaters. And the lotus eaters um, and the lotus flowers are on this island. It's beautiful. You can smell it. You land. It's beautiful. They welcome you. And then you are drugged by these flowers into utter forgetfulness and utter selfishness. And you don't want to do anything but just lie there for the rest of your life. So that's the Lotus Isles of Economic Bliss for selling your soul to gain a Circe kiss. Circe, um, the goddess who tries to seduce Odysseus 
um, turns his men into pigs, um, and he only escapes because he is given um, this other herb by her. Well, anyway, yeah, so there's a whole story with that, but the idea is her kiss is what she uses to kill people, basically. And the second part of this is the whole idea of machine-produced bogus seduction of the twice-seduced. Tolkien believed that the whole um, industrial society was a blight on God's creation and that the destruction of nature and trees for progress was, was wrong. And he's thinking of the smokestacks in England and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that it's bogus, it's machine-produced, and it's a double seduction that this industrialization is good, that's one part of it, and the other is that the money from it will make you happy. It's a double gamble, both sides of which are wrong. So the isles that they see afar and one's more fair, and they're trying to steer this course, and you might remember there's the whole thing of Skella and Cherubdis, which are the, the many-headed monster, and the whirlpool that Odysseus is trying to um, steer between. So he's saying these legend makers, they see all of that. They know all of that is out there. They know how perilous the human journey is. And yet they have seen death and defeat, but they don't despair. They refuse despair. Even though they know the reality of these things, they refuse despair and they tune the wire to victory. And they kindle people's hearts with legendary fire as they invent these stories that are full of wonder and heroism and bravery and that as they do that people find themselves encouraged and think about that word encourage literally means put courage into that the legend makers are doing that and they're illuminating the now and the dark hath been the past and the present with the light of suns that no one has seen because they're invented, they're in that sub-creation, but they are powerful nonetheless. So, Tolkien singing here. I would that I might with the minstrels sing and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would be with the mariners of the deep that cut their slender planks on mountain steep and voyage upon a vague and wandering quest for some have passed beyond the fabled west. I would with the beleaguered fools be told that keep an inner fastness where their gold impure and scanty yet they loyally bring to mint an image blurred of distant king or in fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. So he's saying he wants to be there with the minstrels. He wants to be with those legend makers that are talking about the hope and beauty and the fact that the king is going to come back and that, that throbbing string on the wire, the mariners on the deep, all of them are searching after this goodness, this truth, this promise that ultimately that kingdom of God that we're made for is ultimately going to rule. And that the images that we have of that are one of the ways that we keep hope up in a time of darkness. And I love this image of keeping an inner fastness, of keeping a place in your heart, your soul, that's protected. And the image that he uses here is like of a locked room where people are keeping some gold that they still have that hasn't been taken from them. And they want to bring it 
bring it not to keep it themselves, but to mint it as coin with the image of this distant king. And that's an exercise of faith because obviously that currency doesn't work in the culture where they are, but they want to make currency treasure in heaven. They want to build treasure in heaven. And this harks back to the people that were on the looms back before that are weaving the banners that want to be ready with the great procession to welcome the king when he comes. Then the next part, I will not walk with your progressive apes erect and sapient before them gapes of the dark abyss to which their progress tends if by God's mercy progress ever ends and does not ceaselessly revolve the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable, wherein no part the little maker has with maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. This is Tolkien's manifesto. He says, I am not a progressive ape. I am not a Darwinian evolution. I am made in the image of God, and I am telling you that this whole idea that you are calling progress leads only into a dark abyss of despair. And this progress is not progress at all. And then he has a little parenthetical, if by God's mercy, progress ever ends. And what, just as an aside, one of the things Tolkien was wont to do as he wandered around Oxford in the countryside, every time he saw a place where people were cutting down trees or building a factory, he would mutter, Mordor in our midst. <laughs> Talking about this progress that's not progress. And he says it's the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. And I could spend a long time going off on that too. Think about education fads. Um, think about the, all of the different economic uh, programs that are proposed by politicians that are essentially the same thing that's been tried over and over again for hundreds <laughs> of years, and they just change the name and dress it up, um, but it still doesn't work. Um, then I will not treat your dusty path and flat. Remember this atheistic, materialistic worldview back at the beginning. There is no beauty walking. What are you looking at? The dirt in front of you, and you're not looking at the, the vault, the stars. He says, I'm not going to do that. And I'm also not going to just go with this and that, denoting the narrow definition of something, not the arboreal tree or homuncular men or stellar stars, not the richness of that. He says, Lewis's way of looking at things is shallow and empty. And he says, I refuse to do that. Your world immutable. There's nothing that makes a difference. Your action doesn't make a difference. Your life is pointless. You might as well be a cockroach. You know, all of that, your world is immutable. It just is. You can't make any difference. Your life is pointless. So he says, I will not have any part of that. And he says, in that worldview, the little maker, us, those who are in God's image, in that worldview, we have nothing to do with the creator because there is no creator. But what Lewis is, um, what Tolkien's saying to Lewis is, I believe I'm a little maker. I may not be God, but I can make, I can create, I can produce 
beauty and meaning and purpose because I am made in the image of God and when I come in contact with his kingdom, things change. He refuses to bow before the iron crown. Um, that's sort of a double image of Satan and industrialization and progress, nor cast my own small golden scepter down, that scepter from the Genesis narrative, um, figuratively, of the lordship that God gave his creation. And then the last stanza, in paradise perchance the eye may stray from gazing upon everlasting day to see the day illumined and renew from mirrored truth the likeness of the true. Then looking on the blessed land, twill see that all is as it is, and yet made free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys garden nor gardener, children nor their toys. Evil it will not see, for evil lies not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes, not in the source, but in malicious choice, and not in sound, but in the tuneless voice. In paradise, they look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure, they will still make, not being dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall. Their each shall choose forever from the all. So it's talking about heaven, obviously, and this whole way of seeing that in heaven, when we talked earlier a little bit about the idea of looking at light versus looking at what light illumines and enables you to see. But in heaven, they're combined, that you're able to do both of those things in a miraculous way. We have everlasting day. They need no light, no lamp, nor sun, for Christ shall be there all. And the day is illumined and renewed from mirrored truth, the likeness of the true. This is going to Plato's cave, um, which we'll talk about another time, but it's the whole idea that there are only types and shadows, as we see in the book of Hebrews, that in this life we have types and shadows. Um, there's a reality in God's kingdom that is so more beautiful and so much more real than anything we can imagine, that we just have the shadows. But here, he says, you can see those shadows and turn right around and see. You're not trapped in the cave that makes you look this way. You can turn around, you can see the truth and the beauty in its fullness. And then he says, this blessed land, the creation that God made. Notice in Revelation, it says that the new heaven and new earth come down. The city of God comes down. It's not a cloud. It is the perfected creation. And that all of that salvation doesn't change or destroy the creation, the gardener, the gardener, but all the evil is removed from it. It's perfected. It's made beautiful with a capital B and made in the likeness and fullness of God. And then in, there's no evil. Evil's gone. It's defeated. It's dead. And our eyes are no longer crooked. We can't make bad choices anymore. We're unable to. Uh, and this is all in the last battle. We'll talk about that later. Um, Lewis takes this and uses it in a beautiful way. And then in paradise, we're still making. That's what makes us in the image of God, but we're making things that are beautiful, where the poets have flames on their head. The music is like music that we have never heard because it's perfected, and we can choose whatever we want from the fullness of everything that God has created. So Tolkien 
paints this incredible picture of the difference between this empty, materialistic, atheistic worldview and this wonder-filled understanding of what it means to live, understanding who you are as a man or woman made in God's image. And our culture today wants to convince us that there's no difference between us and a cat or a rock or whatever it is. And we as Christians need to recover this. We need to recover the sense of wonder, recover the sense of what it means to be a sub-creator, and recover the sense of what it means to live richly, even under the night and darkness, knowing that the king who's in a distant country is returning for us. So I could go on and on, but we're out of time. So sorry I talked so much. I hope that that makes sense now, at least a little bit. Um, let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious poem, and we thank you for the amazing gift that you give us in being your children, being your creation, the summit of your creation, and for our ability to imagine and appreciate truth and goodness and beauty. Lord, I pray that you would fire our hearts, that we would not dwell in this despair of our culture, but that we would dwell in the richness of your kingdom and that our joy and light would draw others to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, two, yeah, two things. Um, several people have suggested to me it might be a good idea to skip next week since it's Valentine's Day. I don't know. What do y'all think? I think you better. <laughs> and Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday. All right, well, we'll take a break for one week. Um, your handouts do not... The, there's a one really long handout that's Aristotle's essay on friendship from the Nicomachean Ethics. It's brilliant, but that is only if you are scuba diving. It's 14 pages long, and it's very dense. It's awesome, but what I would ask you to do is at least skim the other one about the inner ring. When we get together in two weeks, we're going to be talking about friendship and what Tolkien and Lewis meant by friendship and how what we think of friendship as in our culture today is only a pale shadow of that and how we can go about recovering that. So, thanks for being here. Ryan is